Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Archives. While our main sermon podcast, uh, Words from the Wildwood, can be found on Sunday mornings, this is more of a retrospective, a looking back at where I have been, where I preached, what I've had the opportunity to do, and the observations I've made along the way. I hope that you can look back with me at many of these sermons that have come. Some may sound a little dated, but you might be impressed to hear things that were going on then that are still going on today. I hope you enjoy this offering from the archives. All right, church, last week we started our study in the book of Galatians. What did we say? United we stand. Divided we fall. Okay, we said that to be united, to be able to stand as a church, to be able to stand as God's people, we needed three things, right? One gospel, one message that Jesus Christ came and died to give us. We need one witness that we who were lost are now found, that we have been cleansed of our sin, and we stand as a living testimony to God's power. Finally, one purpose, and that is to make Jesus Christ known throughout the earth, right? That is what we need if we're going to be united, if we're going to stand as a church, stand as God's people. But you know what? There are many challenges to that type of unity. There's many challenges to that kind of unity. And here it is tonight. The only way that we can overcome the challenges that face us today is through true teamwork. You see, God's work requires a team approach. Now, how many of you like Chuck Norris? You know who Chuck Norris was? I'm dating myself now. Clint Eastwood. There we go. John Wayne. Anyways, we look at the great heroes of American cinema, and they're all loners. They're all single men of great ability, great authority, great power. And every man kind of considers himself like a Rambo. You know, a one-man army, doesn't need anybody else, can do whatever he pleases. I like what one soldier said. They said, you commanded the special forces in Vietnam. What would you do with a man like John Rambo? And, the, and that officer said, I'd shoot him. What do you mean you'd shoot him? He'd get us all killed. Same thing goes for the church. Look at this tonight. Galatians 2, 1 and 2. Galatians 2, 1 and 2. If we're going to maintain unity, if we're going to have proper teamwork, there's three things that we have to get rid of in the church. Three things we got to get rid of in the church. The first thing we have to get rid of is right here. No lone wolves. There cannot be any lone wolves in the church. No lone rangers. No superstars. No one-man armies. First of all, there's no such animal. Second of all, when you have someone like that, that you have a special name for people like that. It's called a heretic. A heretic believes he is the only one appointed by God to bring a special message. That's what Joseph Smith was. Joseph Smith thought he was the last righteous man on earth and God had appointed him to change the whole show. That's why he was a heretic. Let's see what it says tonight. Galatians 2, 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, Paul's coming here to see these men. He's coming here to talk with them. Why? What's going on? Let's take a look at it tonight. Remember what's happened in the first chapter of Galatians. Paul encounters Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus. He is persecuting the church. 
Jesus blinds him, knocks him from his animal. He's laying on the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Christ, whom you persecute, right? That's what happened to Paul. Now, what does Paul do after that? Well, we saw last week in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that immediately after he had this encounter with Jesus, he goes off, he's led off to the city. Here comes this man, Ananias. He says, the Lord sent me to you because you are a chosen vessel. And the scales fall off of his eyes. He can see again. What does he do? Does he run to Jerusalem? The scripture says he went off into Arabia for three years. For three years, he goes off into Arabia. Following that, what does he do? He returns to Jerusalem and he meets just two people. He meets Peter. He meets James, the brother of Jesus. Well, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different fathers. That's where we start our story tonight. Let's look at verse 1. Then after 14 years more, okay, 14 years after he met James and Peter the first time, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus also with me. Okay, very important. Paul's been out there with Barnabas, with Titus, preaching the gospel. He's been out there speaking to the Gentiles all over the known world, sharing the gospel of Christ for all these years. What now makes him come all the way back? What causes him to turn around and come back after all this time? Let me tell you what it does. Right here, Acts 15, 1, 2, and 4. This will give you the reason for which he returns. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them or through them. Okay, now we know why after 14 years, Paul's going back. What's happened? Judaizers from Jerusalem have gone out to where God is doing a work in the midst of the people. Now they start causing all these problems and according to Acts, Paul, Barnabas, they have great long words and discussions with these men about what they're doing. But apparently they're not getting anywhere. So where do they have to go? What do they have to do? They have to return back to that source of authority. Now, this is my opinion. I, I've read it in a few commentaries, but I'm going to preface it. This is my opinion. My opinion is this. When they fought with the Judaizers, just as any time you fight with educated fools, they said, where's your authority? How do you know that? Today, I can resort on going to the Word of God and saying, well, the Bible says A, B, C, D. There was no Bible at the time Paul and Barnabas were fighting with the Judaizers. The gospel of Jesus was being written. The gospel of Jesus was being put out there. But as yet, there was no authoritative text. Why? There was no need. Who was the authority on the life of Jesus? The men who walked with him, who were taught by him, who lived with him, who observed him, the apostles. The only way to settle this argument was for them to go back to the apostles. Now look at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, you know, privately to those who were of influence, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Here's the thing. 
The Judaizers said, you're wrong, Paul. You're wrong, Barnabas. You're not Peter, James, and John. How do you know you're right? Prove to us that you have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I told you, there was no Bible. All they had was the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the writings, and the prophets, right? They had to go back. They did not go back to get their permission to preach. They did not go back to get their blessing to preach. What they did was they went back so they could lay before them exactly what they had told the Gentiles, exactly what the source of the fight was about, and they could get their stamp of approval. Not to the point of saying, oh, I can't go on if Peter doesn't approve of me. But to say to the Judaizers, Peter, James, and John said, this is right. So you guys need to step off and get out of our way. Stop causing us trouble. When you talk to anybody, whether you teach a Sunday school class, whether you lead a home fellowship, whether you are sharing with somebody at work, at some point someone's going to ask you, how do you know you're right? And you've got to come back to the Word. Now there's a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers out there that do things by quote-unquote revelation. I had a revelation from God. Okay, Paul says he went up because of a revelation. The revelation was that Jesus told him through the Holy Spirit, you need to go get hooked up with the apostles one more time. He had been there, but only to meet Peter and James. He needed to go back and connect with them. Why? If you give a man authority, you give a man power, but he doesn't answer to anybody, he becomes a lone wolf. A lone wolf does things his own way to the suiting of his own mind, and that's a dangerous thing. People say, why do I have to go to church? Why, Mark? Why do I have to come on a Wednesday night and listen to the pastor preach? Why do I have to go, Roger? Why do I have to go to home fellowship group? What's so important about it? It's a sense of accountability. Paul, who did not need the blessing of the disciples, he didn't need it because Jesus Christ himself had called him to be an apostle. He still went and submitted to them as one who was a fellow worker because he needed that accountability to show the whole world that he wasn't a hot dog. He wasn't off on his own doing some kind of unique thing. Anytime you see somebody start a new church, start their own denomination, a big question mark has to be over your head. Why? There's people all throughout the world. In Montana, we saw them everywhere. Every little town had an independent, independent Baptist church. Now, you know what that is? That's a Baptist church on account of they baptize people, you know, by sticking them in water. They're independent because they're not part of any denomination. And they're independent, independent, because that means they don't talk to anybody else or cooperate with anybody else in the town. And it's true. There was four independent, independent Baptist churches in the town where I lived. They wouldn't even talk to each other. Do you know why? Because they all came from the same church. The pastor hired one guy who got to be more popular than him, so he fired him. So he went over and started another church. Then he hired another guy who got more popular. So he fired him. He started his own church. Because each one of them wanted to be the lone wolf, independent prophet of God that didn't have to answer to anybody. Paul didn't need to come under that authority, but he showed his submission to, at that time, the only authority the church had. The disciples, the apostles. Same thing's true of you. You can't be a hot dog. You can't go out there and say, well, you know what, I prayed about this and this sounds good to me. No, I'm glad you prayed. But if it doesn't match the expressed word of God, get rid of it. Don't teach it. God didn't give you some revelation separate from his word. There's no such animal. All right, let's move on. The first danger in being part of a team is thinking you're the superstar. Remember the quarterback in high school, the one that thought he could do the whole game? He thought he could run, he thought he could throw. 
Everyone, the guys would all pull back left and right, and they would come right at the center and mow him down. How many times did he get mowed down before he figured out he needed the rest of the team? Once. Once you have cleat marks in your face the next day, you figure out something. Yeah, I'm a great quarterback. Yeah, I can run. But if I don't got some big, hairy brothers right in front of me, I'm going to get killed. Same thing in the church. You need prayer support. You need Bible teaching support. You need each other to get this done. So there can't be lone wolves. Lone wolves tear up the team. But let's see what else we got on here. Okay, if there's no lone wolves, another thing you can't have in a team is compromise. Now, compromise is the word that I don't like. I don't like compromise. So here's what it is. Galatians 2, 3 through 5. Galatians 2, 3 through 5. You cannot have any compromise. If you can't have any lone wolves doing it their own way, having it their own style, you can't compromise when it comes to essential important things. Now, I know churches that say women can't wear makeup and their hair has to be long and their dress has to be to the floor. And I think that's just silly. But you know, that's something that you can talk about. That's a matter of personal preference. When it comes to the teaching of the Word of God, that's where personal preference goes out the door. Let's see what this says. Galatians 2, 3, 4, and 5. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a minute, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's the thing. What was the fight about way back when Paul and Barnabas came to town? Judaizers sneaked in and said, what? I'm so glad all you brothers are following Jesus, but let's make good Jews out of you first. Let's teach you how to get circumcised. These are grown men. You don't circumcise grown men. It's not a good thing. Eight-day-old babies, not a problem. 30-year-old men, big problem. And it wasn't necessary. That's what Paul and Barnabas went to, to make absolutely sure of. So who did they take with them? Did they take another Jew? Someone who wasn't going to cause a stir? They took Titus, a Greek brother who was not circumcised. What was Paul trying to do? Make a point. He wanted to see how they would react to Titus's presence because how they reacted to his presence would tell all the Judaizers back home exactly what the apostles believed. Because if the apostles believed like them, they would have forced the issue. So let's see, no compromise. First, he refers in verse four to false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us again into slavery. Okay, he's referencing Acts 15.1 again. And he says false brothers. Why? Because they were taking the name of Jesus only because they liked the surface. They liked the way it looked. They truly had not given themselves to Jesus Christ. They had not submitted themselves to what the Lord had taught. The Lord never taught, go and circumcise the uncircumcised and preach to them the gospel. He said, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I've taught you. He never taught them about the law of Moses. That was already incumbent upon the Jews, but had nothing to do with the Gentiles. Had nothing to do with those who would come from that faith outside of the stock of Israel. False brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom. Now, what does that word mean? The phrase spy out means to search as in a military exercise for a weakness whereby an enemy might be overcome. 
Understand that? You go in to seek a weak spot. Before they ever went to the promised land, what'd they do? They sent those 12 brothers in to spy out the land, to see where the weaknesses were, to see how strong the cities were, how powerful the people were. Satan does this every day. Religious people do this all the time. This is why I really have a problem standing religious people. I can love them in Jesus, but I don't get to like them. Because what they do is, they're not there to know you, Bruno. They don't want to know what a wonderful man you are, what a great cook you are, how loving and kind you are. They don't, want to, they don't want to know Bill is a great person who tells funny jokes. What they want to see, Bill, they want to see what your weakness is. See, you've got this freedom that I don't have. I'm over here observing the law, and i got to go this many steps on the Sabbath, and i got to stop doing this on this day, and I've got to eat these kind of foods and keep this kind of cleanliness. You don't do that. I resent your freedom. I hate that you're free, and I'm not. That's what the Jews were thinking. So am I really going to get to know your Jesus, or am I going to find some way to bring you down to my level? That's why he says, return us to slavery. Slavery to the law which has been overcome by the death of Jesus. Every culture of the world, every place I've ever been, whether it was the Philippines, or it was Taiwan, or it was Japan, whether it's here in the United States, Mexico, any culture I've lived in has cultural regulations and rules whereby people act. Going to Thailand, same way. All these rules that regulate how you act. Here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with that. Every culture is unique and special and beautiful. However, when you get saved, you become a Christian first and whatever the heck else you are later. You understand what I mean? Like in America, everybody's hyphenated. You know, we got Asian Americans, African Americans, American Americans. We got all these hyphenated people running around. We got Canadian Americans. We don't talk about them. We got all these hyphenated people. Problem is, in the church, you ain't hyphenated. There's only one Jesus Christ. He wasn't an American or a Korean. He was a Jew for crying out loud. Okay? So you can't be hyphenated in the church. There's not one set of rules for white Christians and one set of rules for black Christians, one set for Asian Christians, and, and one set for European Christians. God doesn't change his laws according to where you come from. He says, you're dead. You died. Okay, taking the shoes off in the house, eating kimchi, that's all that's good. That doesn't affect your salvation. But how you accept Christ, how you accept other people who are believers, that's what he's talking about. False brothers who've come to spy out those weaknesses so they can drag us down to their level. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, great Danish theologian, said the liberty and the freedom of Christianity is the most terrifying thing there is. You know why that is? Because Kim over here, Kim is totally free in Jesus Christ to be and do anything that she pleases so long as she stays within the boundaries of Scripture. Now, there's people that would put Kim in a pigeonhole. Well, Kim, you can do this. You, can do, you can't do that. You can't do this. That's not how we do things. That's how God does things. If God doesn't put a restriction on you, why do you put a restriction on yourself? Why would you limit yourself when you have the limitless power of the Holy Spirit moving and living in you to do all these things? Why would you do that? Why would you cut yourself off from everything God could do with you? 
Now there's definitely things that, that you can't do in the church and there's moral restrictions that don't change. But they weren't fighting about that. They were fighting about customs. Things that were added later and added only to the Jews. Look at verse 5. Okay. To those we did not yield in submission even for a minute so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I think here he was thinking about Jesus' words in John 8.36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free if the pastor lets you. You'll be free if your mama allows it. Will you be free so long as you don't break any cultural taboos? No, I don't think so. If the Son sets you free, sweetheart, you are free indeed. That means completely free. Paul understood the law of Moses lost all of its power on him. Now he did say, to the Jew I become a Jew, to the Greek I become a Greek. As one under the law, as a man under the law. To the one outside the law, as one outside the law. He knew how to relate to people where they were with the situations that they had. But sometimes, you see, we don't want to relate to other people the way they are. We want them to look like us first. And then we'll welcome you. Oh, you do things like we do things in our church, then you can come and be part of our family. Oh, you got to look like us, talk like us, act like us, dress like us. After you become us, we'll accept you. That don't work that way. It doesn't matter who walks in the back door of the church, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be accepted at this church, shall be accepted in this sanctuary, at our dinner tables, in our homes, irregardless of how we personally feel about some of their interesting cultural habits. It's true. And that's the hardest thing about being a Christian. You don't have a right to change somebody first and then accept them. You accept them and let the Holy Spirit change them. That's the way it has to be. That's why there's no compromise. That's why there can't be a compromise in the gospel. If God calls them, God saves them, we accept them. We may not understand them. We may not be too, too sure about them. But we have to accept them. We have to add nothing to the law. We add nothing to the freedom in Christ. We add no restrictions. There are some churches that I have been to that say, we love you, brother, but you can't be a member of our church. And I'll go, why I can't be a member of this church? Well, you don't speak in tongues. Well, God didn't give me the gift of tongues. Well, we can teach it to you. That's when I walk out the door. You try to teach me something that ain't in the Word of God, I'm hitting the bricks because I don't belong there. Anytime you tell me I have to do this or do that to be a member of the ecclesia, the called out of God, that's not a place where you need to be. You need to get out of there. That is a hell pit from Satan. You need to just run away and be somewhere else. So always remember that. Never forget. Never, ever compromise on your Christian belief and faith. Don't compromise for anybody. Do what you have to do to be obedient to Christ. All right, last thing. Last thing tonight. Galatians 2, 6 through 10. We've already said, no lone wolves in the church. There's one body. There's one team. We work together or we don't work at all. We don't function. No compromises. We don't add things. We don't subtract things. We don't change the Word of God, change grace to make it more comfortable for us. The last thing is this. No jealousy. There's no room for jealousy in the house of God. Yes, I'm an incredibly attractive man, but don't hate me because of that. Don't be a hater. Yes, I'm funny and interesting. Don't be threatened by that. Yes, I'm a mooch, but don't worry. It's okay. I never mooch that much. Okay. No jealousy. Galatians 2, 6 through 10. Here it is. And from those who seem to be influential, 
What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Y'all should underline that part of the word. From those who seem to be influential, but you know what they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no, no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. I didn't learn something new from them. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor for that very thing I was eager to do. Man! This sums up how a church like TFBC has to work. You understand? This is our church right here, the book of Galatians, chapter 2, 6 through 10. All right, if there's going to be no jealousy, we've got to look at these things. 1, verse 7. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. There were many Jews in Jerusalem who came to faith in Jesus Christ, who got under the weird understanding that the gospel was only for the Jews. Now Jesus said he came to seek the house of Israel first, but also the Gentile nations. The book of Isaiah said that he would come to the, to the last house of Israel, but also come to the Gentile nations. Some of the Jews missed that point. Peter, his heart, his focus was on the people of Israel who missed the Messiah the first time. But then he says, wow, but they saw that the same thing that was entrusted to him was entrusted to me as well. But there were two separate directions. Peter went to the Jew, Paul, to the Greek, to the uncircumcised, to the outcast. Just like in our church, we have Pastor Moon who is called to go to Korean-speaking people. And you have me, I am called to go to English-speaking people or anybody that can understand English. Is one ministry more important than the other? No, it's not. Why is it not? Verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic, meaning the sent out one, the sent out ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The same power that empowers Pastor Moon empowers me, or empowers Barry, or empowers Pastor Hong, or empowers Pastor Kong, or Pastor Jay Lee, or any other pastor in this area who preaches the gospel in whatever language. That thing which powers any pastor is the Holy Spirit. And he's no more present with one man than he is with another. No one man has a corner on it. You see, that's what he said about coming to Peter. Peter and the apostles recognized God had just as validly called Paul as he had called Peter. This was going to shut down the Judaizers. The Judaizers would never have taken on Peter because he was the beloved one of Jesus. Now, now, true, we know that John was the beloved one, but everyone saw Peter as that figurehead, that powerful voice of the church. So you see, he would, yeah, he was the rock, exactly. And so they would never have questioned Peter, but they questioned Paul because they didn't really know him and they didn't connect him right to the earthly Jesus. But now Peter and the apostles saw 
that God was as powerfully with Paul and Barnabas as he was with the rest of them. So that it ended the confusion right there. And there was no jealousy. Peter wasn't jealous that Paul got to go to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't jealous that Peter got to go to the Jews. Each went where God sent him and did his own job. Just like in this church, if we're on a team, the quarterback cannot be the one that everybody envies. Yes, people mistakenly think the quarterback is the heart of the team. We all know it's the defensive line. If there's no defensive line, all the little guys in the back get killed. So it's the big guys up front who take the abuse that protect the whole team. Not that I'm saying anything about my pastor or anything. Anyways, let's press on now. Verse 9. When they realized that they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Understand this. In our day and age, when men greet each other, we stick out that right hand, we grab someone's hand. No big thing in American culture or world culture for that fact. But in the days of the apostles, the right hand was the hand of what? Power. For me to extend my right hand to somebody without a weapon in it meant that you were a friend, that you were trusted, that you were someone that I approved of and that I would partner with. It was an extension of koinonia, that Christian fellowship. So for Peter to extend his right hand to Paul, given who Paul had been, what Paul had done, it was as much as saying, you are one of us. You are a partner in ministry. You are equal to the apostles. And that forever would end all the dissension of whether or not Paul was truly called of God. I mean, there were still questions raised later, but they were illegitimate questions. They were questions raised to, to bring schism and dissension among the people of that day. And that's what was so important, that he got that recognition. And you know what? In the church, we need to recognize everybody who serves us. The ushers who welcome you at the door, who hand out the bulletins. When George gives you that little piece of paper for the Sunday bulletin, that's just as important as anything I do. That's the first face of the church. George is the face of the church. How good is that? See? And if you're back there and you open the door for someone who comes in in a wheelchair or you help somebody come in, it's in a walker, you are just as much a minister, a purveyor of grace as I am. And that's the important thing. We all understand this is a team. I cannot do it by myself. You can't do it by yourselves. But together, we can make an amazing thing happen in this church. Every Sunday school teacher is a vital part of what this church does. Lose a pastor, okay, boo-hoo, it's a sad thing. Lose your teachers, lose your ministry. Lose your Awana's leaders, lose your ministry, lose your children. We are all so critical and vital to this church. It's not even, it's not even funny, yet we underestimate ourselves. All right, so why are you on the team? Finish it up. Are you on the team? One, are you willing to work as part of a team of called-out believers? If you are, just say amen. So we're willing to work together. Two, will you refuse to compromise and reject any man's idea of religion? To say amen, somebody. Okay, if you are a person given to compromise, I would beg you to go back, subject yourself to the word, look at it, see if there's room for a compromise on God's word. If you find it, please come show it to me, because in 10 years of ministry, I've never found it. Jesus did not compromise upon the word. He doesn't change it. He doesn't slacken it. He doesn't remove it in certain situations. The word is the word is the word. Third, will you see each man's ministry as part of the whole? Say amen, somebody. Amen. Okay. Now, if that seems sexist, understand. I was just writing at the time. I am not excluding women 
who do amazing things in this church. Every person's ministry in the church is valuable. There's people that Kim and Tammy can talk to that I can never come close to. There are women going through situations in this church that do not need a man hovering around them. They need another woman that they can talk to, that they can confide in, that they can be honest with. And that's important. So every person's ministry is, is sacred to the church. If you can say yes to all those things, then welcome to the team. Welcome to TFBC 2010, moving on with God's plan out of Galatians. I want to thank you guys for being here tonight. Let me pray and close this out. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today to listening to our programs. We appreciate your attention. We present this for you as a way of building up God's people, giving you hope in these dark days. They are presented to you commercial free. We don't solicit money from any companies, Bible organizations, or churches. We put it out there because we believe wholeheartedly that the Word of God is the only hope this country or any country could have. Because we present it to you commercial free, we do ask you to search your heart. If you feel the need to support us in any way, it, it, could, be a, it could be a love offering, a gift, send me enough for a cup of coffee. I'd really appreciate it. You can send all support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, Richard Stidham at Box 1321. Baytown, Texas, 77521, and everything you send to us will be used to keep this podcast on the air. Have a great day. God bless, and remember, keep looking up. Our salvation is drawing near.